folks, if you have a Bible and you want to follow the reading, we're just going to turn to Mark's Gospel. Mark chapter 2, please. Mark's Gospel in chapter 2. We'll just commence reading at verse 1. And again, again he entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together, so that there was no room to receive them, not even near the door, and he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who had been carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Some of the scribes were sitting and reading in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemy like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves. He said to them, Why do you reason about these things in your heart? Which is easier? Say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven forgiven you, or say, Arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, Arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he rose, took up his bed and went out into the presence of them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Let's just bow for a brief word of prayer. Dear Father, we just thank you for your precious word. And we thank you for what we learned from it. And Lord, as I bring a few thoughts from your word this morning, I pray that you'd use them uh, for your glory and that you, your voice would be heard, not mine, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I just put a little tight four men uh, united in purpose. And that's what we see here in this passage of scripture. There are many unknown men in the Bible where, and uh, who have done great things for God. And I just want us to focus our attention upon uh, these four insignificant, unnamed men who, fu who fulfilled the greatest task ever on earth in bringing somebody to the Lord Jesus. We see an account of this miracle in Matthew chapter 9, Mark chapter 2 here, and Luke chapter 5. And there are many things we can learn about these four unknown men by reading through, uh, reading between the lines of Scripture. Uh, like many in scripture, we don't know their occupation, but of course their occupation is not important. It's their character is what is important. And we live in a society today where we're prone to judge somebody by their occupation. We ask somebody, well, what do you do for a living? And then we make a judgment uh, in our own minds, which sometimes can be wrong. And sometimes we're inclined to define people by what they do as an occupation. As we look at this passage of scripture, we don't know if these men were young or old. We're not told if they're married or single. Uh, we're not told if they're related to this sick man or not. We don't know where they lived, although the miracle took place in Capernaum. But despite this, we can learn a lot about their character by observing uh, their actions. Just as others can learn a lot about us by observing our actions. As we look at these men, they're united in purpose, and we see blessing followed. 
And if we want to see anything meaningful achieved for God, we need to be united. The Bible tells us where the brethren dwell together in unity, there the Lord commands the blessing. They were going to bring their friend to Jesus. As we look at this passage, they were going to bring their friend to Jesus and absolutely nothing was going to stop them. And uh, we, we need to have that same determination. They knew that Jesus could do something for them, for their friend, that they could not do. They brought him to the all-powerful, almighty King Jesus. And the first thing we notice about these four men is they're concerned for another's well-being. They're concerned for another's well-being. They had a vision. And can I ask you this morning as a Christian, do you have a vision? Do you have vision? Because the Bible tells us where there is no vision, the people perish. Have you ever thought as you stood at your, stand at your school gate or on a busy street or in a shopping centre that perhaps you're the only Christian amongst the hundreds of people that are around you? Everyone else in that crowd is going to an awful place called hell for all eternity. Men, women and children dying without the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus looked at the crowd... He saw them as sheep, lost sheep, having no shepherd, having no guide, having no leader, no protector. How do we see people? When we look on down the streets of Painton, there on a Saturday, you see hundreds of people walking about. What do we see? I would like you to visualize the scene. I don't know if all of you live in a, a housing state or not, but you wake up tomorrow morning, you fling back your curtains. And to your horror, every house on your street is on fire. Women are clutching babies in their arms and upstairs windows screaming for help as the flames lick around them. Every home, there's people trapped in smoke-filled rooms screaming for fear, clawing at the windows, calling and pleading and begging for help. People are jumping from upstairs windows to try and escape. Seen sim similar to 9-11 uh, atrocity. But there's no fire because the whole town is ablaze. Every home except a few Christian homes on fire. What would you do? Would you run out to your garage, get your golf clubs? Put them in the boot of the car? And casually go for a round of golf? Of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. We wouldn't dream of doing something like that if we saw our neighbour's house on fire. But we need to ask the question, I just want to come across as being critical here this morning, but what are we doing as retired Christians? Are we spending hours of our free time? Instead of trying to win souls, we spend hours, weeks, years dare I say it, beating a little white ball up and down the green. While thousands of souls are dying all around us. I spoke to a fit and healthy man, a retired man in, in uh, Peterhead when I was working up there. And he spent hours on the golf course. Now don't misunderstand that. If you play golf, okay. 
Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with a round of golf. There's nothing wrong with having a, uh, watching a game of football. There's nothing wrong with having a hobby. Don't misunderstand me. But we need to be careful that we do not spend too much time when there are souls around us dying in their sin. We need a vision of the perishing. And the Bible says, where there is no vision, the people perish. People in, our, in the houses around where we live are dying. The houses we drive past every day are on fire, so to speak. The flames of hell are licking around them. And oh, that we would see that those people are facing God's judgment. And we need to ask ourselves, what are we going to do? Are we going to keep on doing the things we enjoy most? Are we going to take the time and give them a tract? Some of you may say, well, I'm not as fit and not as healthy as I used to be. That may be true, but God can still use you to reach souls for him if you will allow him to guide you and help you. Do we need a new vision of the lost? Do we need to say that old hymn? Maybe some of you are familiar with that old hymn. Give me a vision, heart-stirring vision. Open my eyes, Lord, today. Show me the sign, the doomed and the dying. Give me a vision, I pray. Is that our heart's desire, that we have a fresh vision of our neighbours, our loved ones, our family members who are lost in their sin? These men saw a need and they knew that need could be met. They were actively seeking a resolution to their friend's problem. Warren Wearsby says they put feet to their prayers. They did not let difficult circumstances discourage them. In verse 5, it tells us they, they were men of faith. I would say to you, do not waste your life on trivial matters. Because each one of us have to give an account to God for how we spend our time and how we use our lives. So these men were concerned for another's well-being, but there were also these men were filled with passion and they were filled with love for their friend. And we need to have a heart that's filled with compassion for the lost. When you go home, I challenge you to get alone in the privacy of your own home and ask yourself this question out loud. Get in a room on your own and ask yourself this question. What happens to a person who dies without having sought God's forgiveness? Ask yourself that question. And then out loud say they go to hell for all eternity. Keep on saying that over and over again until the reality of that grips your heart. If we can repeat the answer, they go to hell forever, without a tear in our eye, then there's something wrong. We need to ask God to give us a love and a heart for lost souls. God is looking for harvesters, laborers, workers for his field. It says, pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. These men believed that Jesus was the only answer to their friend's problem. And if we believe that anything other than faith in Jesus Christ will solve the crisis in our society, we are kidding ourselves. 
we are kidding ourselves. Are we filled with compassion like these men were? They were not only concerned, they were filled with compassion, but they were committed to the task. They were committed to the task of bringing their friend to Jesus. A task that was physically demanding. They had to carry their friend in the heat of the day. We don't know how large a man he was. We don't know how far they had to carry him. And when they get to the house, they're hindered by a crowd. This is not the first person that's been hindered to be hindered by a crowd from coming to faith in Jesus. Zacchaeus was also hindered. And we need to be careful that believe, as believers that we are not a hindrance to others coming to Jesus by the way we live our lives. We need to be sincere. We need to be genuine. We need to ask God to make us Christ-like. So these men faced a task that was physically demanding. The crowd was not going to stop them, however. They didn't say, oh, we'll come back tomorrow. They climbed up the stairs of that, onto the flat roof and they opened a large hole through the tiling we see in Luke 5, verse 19, and they let their friend down to Jesus. Now, we have to remember, it's not houses like we live in today. It was houses with flat roofs. We see that there in the story of Rahab when she hid the spies on the roof. We see the same in the story of Samuel and Saul talking on the roof in 1 Samuel 9, verse 25. Peter went up to the roof to pray. We read in Acts 10, verse 9. These men proceeded to strip the roof, a physically demanding job. But these men were willing to get their hands dirty in order that their friend might meet with Jesus. They would stop at nothing until they accomplished that task. And oh, that we had more Christians like that, with that, that attitude when it comes to winning souls. Not the attitude of a Christian lady in Peterhead, she said to Ruth one day, she met Ruth at the school gate, and she says, what's Nigel, Nigel this morning? What's Nigel doing? And Ruth says, oh, he's out visiting the doors, giving out gospel literature. And her response was, oh, no. The people don't like that around here. She would rather watch them die and go to a hell for all eternity rather than upset them rather than disturb them in their darkness, rather than trying to reach them with the gospel. She was worried that they might be upset by receiving a little bit of paper that shared the gospel. But as we look at these men, they were determined they were going to bring their friend to Jesus. And we need to ask God, as believers, to give us that same determination. It was a task that was physically demanding, it was a task that was time-consuming. Souls are not easily won to Christ today. We live in a world that, largely speaking, does not want to know Jesus. Oh, they'll talk religion all day. They'll talk about being spiritual. But you bring up Jesus, and the door will be slammed in your face. Or they'll, they'll just change the subject. These, these men were determined. Another preacher down here. <laughs> it's okay, Vic. It's okay, Vic. So the task was time-consuming. As I said, souls are not easily won. And it sometimes takes years of hard work before we see people saved. 
We also noticed it was a task that was expensive. These people, bringing people to Christ is expensive. To keep missionaries on the mission field, it costs money. It's expensive. And some missionaries have to leave the mission field because of lack of support. Missionary societies are closing today because they're not being sufficiently supported by God's people. But these men were different. They lost the day's pay. These men were different. They lost the day's pay. They left their work to bring Jesus, this man to Jesus. They left their place of work to bring their friend to Jesus. They probably had spent more time and money repairing the roof after this miracle was performed. It's not just a matter see, of bringing somebody to Jesus. There's the follow-up work to do. They were Christians who were willing to put their hands in pockets. Their skills were the Lord's. Their time was the Lord's. Their money was the Lord's. These men were totally yielded to God and obedient to what he placed upon their hearts. And that's the point that each one of us, we, we to come to as Christians. We can be a Christian all our lives for 20, 30, 40 years, but there's areas of our lives that are not totally yielded. We need to be totally yielded and surrendered. It is interesting as we look at this story that the owner of the house does not run out and demand that they stop what they're doing. No record of him complaining. And I don't think that he was the type of man who would complain. He was delighted to have Jesus in his house preaching the gospel to the unsaved. He was probably delighted to see this man come to faith in his home. His home was available for the proclamation of God's word. We don't know anything about his house. We don't know if he lived in a big mansion or, or what it was. The only thing we're told is was a, it had a flat roof. It may have been a grand house. It may have been just a humble home. But it was, a, it was available for God and for, Je for Jesus to preach the gospel. He wasn't concerned about how his house looked. He wasn't concerned about the mess. You visualize it. Parts of the roof are falling in. And these men begin to take it apart. He wasn't concerned about the cloud of dust. He was more concerned that people come to faith in Jesus. He didn't object when he realized how long, uh, real, he realized long before Jesus had arrived at his house that he was merely the caretaker of his home. It's God's house. God had given him that house. What are the important things in our life? That our property, how it looks, our worldly possessions? Or is it living in such a way that we see others coming to Christ? That's the important thing. What did Jesus do in this man's house? Verse 2. See there. He preached the word to them. He preached the word. Luke's account says he thought them. So Jesus is preaching and teaching the word of God. And is that not what we need to get back to? Is that not what the, why the problem is in our land today? Because we've left the word of God to one side. I'm not saying you're doing it here. Don't misunderstand me. But a lot of churches have put the word of God to one side. We need to get back to preaching the word of God. How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach except they are sent? God's appointed way is preaching. So many of our churches have replaced the word of God with worship. And there's nothing wrong with worship. 
But if God's word and the Bible and its teaching is not central in our churches, then we're on a slippery slope to disaster. And that's why our land is in the state it's in today. Hebrews says the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts of man's heart. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, says Second Timothy, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be completely and thoroughly equipped for every good work. We have a generation of clueless Christians with little or no knowledge of the truths found in God's word. In some or many of our churches, we're worshipping worship. We're worshipping the praise leaders. I sat in a church recently, big old beautiful church. The pulpit wasn't being used. But I tell you what it was used for. On that particular Sunday that I was there, I had a little sneaky look and it was full of the band's equipment, the praise group's equipment. There wasn't even a lecturer for the preacher. He had to preach from a wobbly old music stand. I was in another small church one time and nearly a quarter of the church was taken up with the praise band's equipment. Is that not a symbol of what is going on in some of our churches? Is it any wonder we have a generation of young believers who have a very poor knowledge of God's word? Many in their services are filled with praise with little time for the teaching of God's God. Don't misunderstand me. There is a place for worship, but not at the expense of teaching Christians from God's word. God's word needs to be first place in our churches. So as we look at these four men, they were concerned for another's well-being, they were filled with compassion, they were committed to the task, and they were convinced that Jesus was the answer to this man's problem. And if we believe there's an answer to people's problems outside of Jesus Christ, then we are deceiving ourselves. Jesus can meet every need of our heart. You may say, oh, that's a very simplistic view. But who better can we go to than the Son of God? These four men, as we look at them, they were men of faith. And I would put out the challenge to you, to you this morning. Are there four men of faith here? who will get together and unite in prayer until they see miracles happening, until they see people coming in from painting from the estates here and getting saved in this church. I was brought up in Kilkenny in the south of Ireland. There was a Presbyterian church there that was almost at the point of closing. There was four or five godly men got together and they prayed and they prayed for years. And people started getting saved. And the church started building up and building up to the point where the old church got too small. And they had to build a new church. And that church is still thriving to this day because four or five men got together and they just prayed and prayed for God to move and God to come. And that's what these men done. They joined together in unity and they worked together that they, their friend might hear the gospel. And that's what I would put out the challenge tomorrow. Are there four here who will say, I want to be, I'm going to pray until something happens. And then are we willing to surrender and say, Lord, here am I, if the Lord shall ask us to go and, ha and win others for him. Are there four men here and they're willing to carry others to Jesus that he might heal them, not only physically, but spiritually? See, God is looking for ordinary men. 
who will carry their friends to Jesus in faith and in prayer. Will you be that person? Will you take up the stretcher, so to speak, the bed that he was carried on? Will you take your share of the burden? Where are the men and women today who will take their stand for God in the workplace, in their community? Are we fully convinced that what people need in their lives is Jesus? These men were convinced and their faith was rewarded. Their friend was converted. Their friend was healed. We see there in verse 5. It says, Jesus saw their faith. Jesus saw the faith of the five. The man on the stretcher or on the bed and the four friends. And when Jesus looks upon us, what does he see? Do we see we have people of faith? Did you see people of faith? They knew that this man's need was urgent. And do we see that our need is urgent? Do we see that people need their sins forgiven? He says, Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. Warren Wearsby says, the forgiveness is the greatest miracle that ever, Jesus ever performed. The greatest need, it, it meets the greatest need, it costs the greatest price, it brings the greatest blessing, and it brings the most lasting results. See, only Jesus has the power for, to forgive sins. Jesus knew the thoughts of the religious leaders. And he knows what's in each one of our hearts. In verse 6, they were skeptical. But we see Jesus has the power to forgive sins. Why? Because he is God. In verse 7, the religious leaders were right when they said, only God can forgive sins. And the authority to forgive can only be the prerogative of the one who is wronged. And all sin is ultimately sin against God. Therefore, the Pharisees were right. Only God, the one wronged, can forgive. In this act, the Lord Jesus is making the highest claim of deity. In Luke 5 and verse 24, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That's what it says. In this statement, we see the limitation, uh, limitations of that forgiveness. Here on earth is where Jesus died. Here on earth is where we can know his forgiveness. Beyond the grave, there is no forgiveness. We need to meet with God today. Because the Bible says all of us are sinners. And I referred to that youth club earlier on that I attended. And there was a group of other young people came to that youth club. And there was a lady that brought them, sat down beside me and started telling me I was a sinner. I was raging. I'd never drank, I'd never smoked, I'd never lived an immoral life, I'd never taken drugs. I was okay. The Bible says we're sinners. We're all sinners and we need God's forgiveness. We're born in sin and we're shaped in iniquity. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Your parents never sat you down one day and said, come on, Johnny, I want to, I want to teach you how to lie today. Come on over here, sit down here, I want to teach you how to stay. No, all of those things are within our heart, our sinful nature. I have met many people who do not believe that God exists. But the scripture says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. And many don't believe in heaven, they don't believe in hell, they don't believe in God's judgment of every individual at the end of life. 
There's other fundamental truths in God's word that, that are rejected today by many. But that does not change the fact that they are true. There is a place called heaven. There is a place called hell. Each one of us will face God's judgment. But the great thing is each one of us can be forgiven. Each one of us can be forgiven. I was coming through the airport recently and I heard a bit of a commotion and the security man was shouting at this person. The man was trying to get through the security barrier but the problem was the lady in front of him had scanned her passport and he was trying to get through. And we need a passport to get to heaven. We need our own personal passport which is faith in Jesus Christ alone. Belief in the fact that he died for us on, for our sins on Calvary. We cannot rely upon the faith of our parents. Neither do our children automatically be saved because we are saved. It is a personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Just like that man, he couldn't get through in the woman's passport. He needed his own passport to get through the security barrier. We need our own passport to heaven, and that is faith in Jesus Christ alone. The Bible says you must be born again. You and I personally must be born again. If you go out tomorrow morning and you buy a brand new car, the salesman will ask you, what optional extras, extras do you want on it? He'll give you all the optional extras you want as long as you have the money. But this is not an optional extra. The Bible says you must. You and I personally must be born again if we want to be in God's heaven. God deals with us as individuals because he loves us as individuals. He will, will have to give an account of him to, to God at the end of life. It says, so then each of us shall give an account of himself to God. As we look at these four men, they brought their friend to Jesus. Why? Because they knew that Jesus was the only one who could meet their need. His need, sorry. And I wonder as Christians, do you bring your children, your family members and your friends to Jesus? In prayer, by your example, sharing from God's word. In closing, we see that these four men were concerned for their friend, they were filled with compassion, they were committed to the task, and they were totally convinced that Jesus could do a miracle. Because Jesus changes lives, and he changes them for the better. Before I become a Christian, I did not want to know anything about Jesus, because I thought, if I become a Christian, I'm going to have to give up this, I'm going to have to give up this, I can't do this and I can't do that. No, no, no. Jesus said, I am calm that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. He wants to give us real peace and real satisfaction. And you'll never know that real peace and satisfaction until you come to Jesus. Do you have faith in Jesus that he can perform miracles in your unsaved family members and friends? Yes, we should have that faith. Why? Because Jesus is almighty. And there's absolutely nothing he can do, uh, nothing that is impossible for him. He can save that friend that you've been praying for for years. That neighbor, you think, oh, he's far from God. No, he's not. Jesus can work a miracle in that person's life. Keep on praying. Keep on trusting. Thank you for listening.